Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Like most of us, Dr. Albert Bourla remembers the first time he heard about a novel coronavirus that was spreading in China. The first thing that came to my mind is I have thousands of people working for us in China. I had manufacturing sites, I had research centers in China. And we were just monitoring the situation, but with an eye that this is only China. But as the coronavirus began its march around the world in early 2020, it became clear that the disease it caused, COVID-19, would be impossible to contain. In uh, February, things started to getting more and more visible. From uh, Asia, things went into Europe and went straight to Italy. And uh, I started worrying about it. And I traveled there a week after. And that is when I realized things are going to be very bad. My name is Albert Burla. I'm the CEO of Pfizer since 2019. As he traveled home from a canceled conference in Greece, Albert Bourla was already forming a plan. I decided to take the plane and go back immediately. And on the plane, I realized that that's affecting the whole world. So I was having time to reflect what we need to do and what is our role. From the Freakonomics Radio Network, this is Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. I'm a medical doctor and I'm also an economist. Today, you'll hear my conversation with someone who, in a way, also straddles these two worlds, and a few other ones too. When I was elected as CEO, the first statement that I made to my board members was only in America. We'll talk about Albert Bourla's unusual path to this high-ranking role and about his new book, Moonshot. In it, he describes developing a COVID vaccine in record time, but not just any vaccine, my scientists came and said, let's try mRNA. And that was very counterintuitive. I, I challenged the decision. I said, are you kidding me? We'll also explore why decision-making in general can be so hard, even for, and maybe especially for, people at the very top. When I took the job, I felt that there is something that you can be prepared for. And I found it very challenging. And this is that the buck stops here. And Albert tells me why the way people view his industry might be changing. In the pandemic, in a very profound way, we were able to show that there is a good reason for our existence.
what do you prefer to be called? Do you want to be called Dr. Bourla, Albert, Chief Bourla, Chief Albert? You you just tell me. Usually it's Dr. Bourla, but for you, Dr. Albert. Dr. Albert, okay. No, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> don't, don't, don't dare. <laughs> no, you, Albert, please. If there's a typical route to becoming CEO of one of the largest and most influential pharmaceutical companies in the world, it feels like Dr. Albert Bourla, or Albert, didn't take it. I'm Greek by nationality, so I was uh, born and raised in uh, the second largest city of Greece. It's called Thessaloniki. Actually, it's a very historic city. It's not very well known, but it was named after the sister of Alexander the Great. And it was founded 2,300 years ago. So it's a very old city. I became veterinarian. I was 18 when I made the choice, and I had an immense love for animals, and I liked medicine. And that's what I felt is the best combination of the two. So when you were six years old, you didn't anticipate becoming CEO of a drug company. Would that be accurate? Not of Pfizer, but I knew that I would be famous and uh, knew- great. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> Actually, when I was six years old, I remember telling my father I wanted to be Tarzan. And uh, when he asked me why, uh, I said, because uh, I think Jane is very beautiful. Eventually, he got over Jane, as one does and obtained his veterinary degree. But Albert was beckoned by the world of research, which is exactly where he thought he'd stay. I finished my PhD, and um, all I wanted was to make a career in academia. I never felt that I would do something else, and I never thought that I would leave my city, Thessaloniki. Pfizer came with their animal health business. It was in Athens. And they tried to recruit me, and uh, they tried really hard. (laughs) So they put an offer in front of me I couldn't resist. So that's how I joined Pfizer. I didn't know two things. One is that um, within a few months, I will fall in love with the private sector, what I thought was the Antichrist (laughs) (laughs) at the moment. I I thought you were telling me like how you met your wife, but okay, you fell... This is your second love that you fell in love with first, I guess. My wife is the big love. That was the (laughs) first love. (laughs) And uh, I decided uh, to stay. So that's the first thing that I didn't know. The second thing that I didn't know is that uh, this first reluctant relocation would be the first of nine I did with a company. I lived in nine different cities of uh, five different countries with Pfizer. Most of my career in the 30 years, I'm having 30 years next year, uh, 17 of them was in the animal health group, not in the the pharma group. I grew up in the ranks of uh, a division very small within Pfizer. We had to fight to get resources in very different ways. We had to learn to do things uh, in a very nimble way. So when I joined um, the pharma, I was... uh, really able to see things that others that grew up in this business, they couldn't. I think that helped me be different, at least. As Albert moved from city to city and country to country, he climbed the ranks within Pfizer. In 2018, he became chief operating officer and the following year, CEO. Do you enjoy what you do? I do. I do. I don't enjoy losing. I hear many people that are saying, you know, I like challenges. Well, I like challenges when I can uh, 
<laughs> we, I, I don't like a challenge when we fail. I like when uh, the study shows that uh, the cancer patients uh, lived uh, more on this drug. And when uh, I see that we didn't have an impact, you know, it's a tremendous disappointment. You want to be the one that you will present the solution to the cancer patients. You can stand up and uh, say to a father or mother that I have a solution on where you will see the graduation of your daughter or the, the wedding of, of, of your son. It's very bitter. Uh, the sense of uh, failure in clinical development. Anybody who takes care of patients would probably say um, the same thing because there's a very direct attachment between who they're taking care of. They see the pain, they see the hope. And when things don't work out, uh, it's very difficult to sort of remove yourself from that. But, you know, doctors and other healthcare providers probably learn how to detach themselves in that way. You're obviously many, many levels higher, but the impact potentially is much, much greater. You're not talking about one patient, but thousands or maybe millions of people who are affected by an up or down outcome on a drug. But still, that component is there for you. Oh, very accurate. Very accurate. During the studies, during the, the whole development of the program, usually I meet with a lot of patients. So we know people. We know people that participate, and, um, you know, it's really very painful when you fail. It is very, very rewarding when you are successful. I became CEO in 2019. I thought that I was preparing for that the last two, three years. As part of that process, I learned not only to, to do a lot of the parts of the business, but I learned to speak to investors, to the press, to politicians, to the field, to, to do all the things that uh, maybe a CEO will do. I was very surprised, however, that when I took the job, I felt that there is something that you can be prepared for, and I found it very challenging. And this is that the buck stops here. You can only feel it when you are CEO because you are alone. You are the ultimate decision maker. Before, I knew that there was someone above me that can stop me if there is something stupid. So there was filters. Now, I felt suddenly that there is no one uh, that can do that. So I started being very conservative and starting thinking and double-guessing two, three times everything. Until someone told me, look, it's not the conservatives that brought you here. It is that the board appreciated that you have an appetite for risk, that you are thoughtful, they trust you. So don't be conservative. And then this is when I started realizing that I need to adapt to this level of responsibilities and do the things that I know or I feel are the right things to do. That was the biggest thing of the adjustment. One of the most compelling parts of the book, Moonshot, was sort of how you describe the early stages of the pandemic, when we were starting to hear news about a new virus in China, the genetic sequence was being identified. Can you walk me through that time for you, both as an executive at Pfizer and also personally? The first thing that um, we learned with uh, this pandemic was not a pandemic, but was a situation in China. We realized that in China there is a health issue. And that was the first thing that came to my mind as, as a CEO of Pfizer. I have thousands of people working for us in China. I had manufacturing sites, I had research centers in China. So we formed a, a task force to see how we can uh, protect them, what needs to be done. So we started implementing some measures, 
for the first time we told them stay home. It was unthinkable for us. And we were just monitoring the situation, but with an eye that this is only China. In uh, February, things started to getting more and more visible. And particularly, we started seeing from Asia, things went into Europe and went straight to Italy. And uh, I started worrying about it. I had a discussion with our board that was in February. Still, no one was thinking that this is anything like that, right? We are all in the meeting room. And um, I traveled the week after, and that is when I realized things are going to be very bad because I am traveling to participate in a Congress. Suddenly, from Italy, things are moving to other European countries, and the Congress is canceled. So I decide to take the plane and go back immediately. And on the plane, I realized that that's affecting the whole world. So I was having time to reflect what do we need to do and what is our role. And I wrote down three things. The first was what we do with our people. So we need to find solutions how to make sure that uh, they are not going to get affected. The second was the hospitals and ICUs. I saw in China that they had tremendous surge of hospitalization. And when I asked our local guys, they told me that the main problem over there, it is that people die because they can't give them enough hospital care, because they don't have enough beds, because they are all getting sick at the same time. But this made me think that we are one of the biggest suppliers of injectable products in the world. Products that are used in ICUs are made by Pfizer. And I was thinking, how can I maintain a supply that uh, the demand will go not two or three, 40, 50 times in some medicines, very specialized medicines, how to maintain that and at the same time uh, work under social distancing uh, type of uh, isolation. That was a very big challenge for us. And the third was I wrote down, we need to work on vaccines and uh, treatments. Why did you choose the mRNA platform versus any number of ways you could have tried to develop a vaccine? I was very reluctant to choose it. Moderna, the decision for them would be, shall we do a vaccine or not? There was only one way they can do it. mRNA, this is where they are good. Ourselves, we were mastering all technologies. But my scientists came and said, let's try mRNA. And that was very counterintuitive. I, I challenged the decision. I said, are you kidding me? You want to put in a pandemic all our bets into a technology that never delivered the product, why don't we go with something else? And um, we sat down to discuss it. So I was convinced by their arguments. The first one was we were working with this company, with BioNTech, to develop a flu vaccine for the last two years. And um, we had matured this technology significantly to make a flu vaccine. So they were feeling that it's ready to deliver a product. The second is we focused on what are the benefits if we are successful. And uh, the benefits were very, very impressive. With mRNA, you can move extremely fast. You can do in uh, weeks things that you take months with the other technologies. So that was a very big plus. With mRNA, you feel that you can boost as many times as you want. It's not easy to boost with adenovirus because every time you you are boosting, you are not creating only antibodies against the coronavirus, but also against the adenovirus, which is the 
the carrier, and that could reduce the effectiveness of your vaccine. In terms of variants, you wanted to be able to scale up manufacturing uh, in a quick way. And in the mRNA, it's not a biological production. You don't have some bacteria that they are making your vaccine eventually. So you can really plug and play in the mRNA. You can take a new variant, put it in the same vaccine, and then uh, the vaccine is completely different, although it is basically everything the same vaccine. So all of that were the things that uh, convinced me to to go with this uh, bet. But it was a very difficult decision for me. Coming up after the break, Albert and I reflect on some other difficult and big decisions he's made during the pandemic. We were on a race. We wanted to bring a vaccine. And actually, I wanted to be the one that we will bring the first one. Also, how will we coexist with this virus going forward? I think the most likely scenario is that the virus will be around for years. I'm Bob Bujena, and this is Freakonomics MD. More of my chat with Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla after the break. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... A charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It typically takes five to 10 years to develop and manufacture a vaccine, and often it takes even longer. It's a process that entails not just making the vaccine itself, but testing it in phase one, two, and three trials that assess things like safety, dosage, immune response, and efficacy. Then there's the regulatory process, which can also take months, if not years. And finally, if it's approved, the vaccine has to be manufactured at scale. Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical makers brought their COVID vaccines to market in less than a year. So what was it like to find out that the mRNA vaccine had worked? What was the email like when you got the first results from the phase three trial? How long How long did that uh, euphoria last? Was it like an hour, two hours, three hours? <laughs> no, that lasted uh, quite a bit because I didn't <laughs> allow people to communicate to me after that. 
It was not an email. <laughs> it was actually live, waiting to hear the numbers. We gather five of us in a very small office in a Connecticut side that we have. We were waiting to hear back when this committee, which is an independent committee of experts, will unblind the data and see what's going on. They were late, so that makes you worry. You, you always think if they are late, that's a bad news. <laughs> then it was uh, 20 to 2, something like that, that they sent an email. Uh, we have the data, please assemble. So we went to a meeting room. They were late. We were in a Zoom call and they were not coming. So again, I was uh, very nervous. I would say, I think they do it on purpose to punish me for everything I did to them all these months, torturing them with, uh, I want it faster, I want it faster. They told us the news that it was successful in an interim analysis. I was, uh, uh, I jumped from my chair. It was an amazing moment. And then 10 minutes later, they, in a smaller group even, they told us what is the efficacy. That was the most material information in the world at that time. And then someone told me the, info, the numbers, and I didn't hear well. He told me 90, and I heard 19. And I said, 19 or 90? He said, 90. He said, 90? Said, yes. He said, so what, what is the efficacy? And then he told me, 95.6. And I looked at our legal counsel and said, what is this? I mean, <laughs> this is... <laughs> then I started going... From there, very fast, we communicated the next day, at six o'clock in the morning. The decision to go with the mRNA platform for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine might seem obvious in retrospect, as good decisions do. At the time, though, no one at Pfizer, including Albert, could be sure that risking so much time and so many resources would pay off. It's hard to consider the alternative. It would be a very big disappointment. I think uh, if we were not successful, uh, clearly Moderna also wouldn't be successful a little bit later. And uh, the world would be in a very different place right now. So one thing it is, okay, we failed. I will have to write off two and a half billion dollars. And uh, that's nothing compared to what the world would be entering into a phase of darkness and, I mean, unbelievable. So, thank God, it was positive. Albert told us that the decision to go with the mRNA platform was the hardest decision he had to make as CEO. So, I wondered, what was the second hardest decision you had to make during the pandemic? Not to take the money from the government. Again, as a CEO, it was a time that... Um, it was the Operation War Speed, and they were giving money like there's no tomorrow. Whoever was raising the hand could take as much as they wanted because people were scared. Now, why I didn't take the money was because when you take money from someone, never comes without strings attached. The fact that these are taxpayers' money, they better check where the money are going, and they better check how you spend them. But this is what I wanted to avoid. We were on a race. We wanted to bring a vaccine, and actually I wanted to win us. I wanted to be the one, but we will bring the first one, this vaccine. And by taking the money, I knew that my scientists will have to sit in numerous committees of people from wherever, NIH, Operation World Speed, CDC, everyone in existence, to, to be able to 
make a decision. I didn't want that. I wanted to be isolated from all of this bureaucracy. We had enough bureaucracy internal of the company. So I said, it's you and me. So we will all be meeting twice a week, everybody who is needed for a decision. And we will discuss it all together. And then there is someone who can make a call in this meeting. And it's me. Bam. So I could hear everyone and then we move, we move, we move. This is how we were able to, to move fast. Prior to the pandemic, have you ever made anything move so quickly? No. With any other disease or product? We had uh, successes in uh, our research programs, but we never have something of, of that speed. It makes me think, though, what you were able to do because the stakes were so high in the pandemic, does that tell you anything about whether we should or can move quicker in other areas? Well, if we were able to make uh, a vaccine uh, in uh, nine months instead of eight years, you can tell uh, what that could be the impact if we were making uh, a heart attack treatment or a cancer treatment or a rheumatoid arthritis treatment or a topic dermatitis treatment, all of these diseases that they are a big, big burden to, to humankind. It's not easy, though. One, it is that the conditions that um, we were living were truly unique. So it was not only that we put all the money and all the resources, but everybody put their time 24-7. They couldn't sleep for three, four weeks, maybe. Uh, difficult to replicate something like that. So I think you can uh, replicate a very large part of it. And it is a question of culture, how to think big, how to do things out of the box. And it's not only us. We'll require um, the regulators to do the same. You need two to tango. Also, uh, FDA and regulators, they will have to do the same. We can't just say, now let's go back to normal. We'll be again three, four months. When you saw that, you can do it in a week. What does the future hold for the pandemic? What is your sort of like lay of the land for the next few years and maybe even further? Do you have a sense? We must have a vaccine that is administered annually. If um, we have uh, vaccines that um, either we don't know how long will last or we know that will last, let's say, a few months, the compliance of the people with the recommendation of the health authorities will go down. I'm certain. I think the most likely scenario is that the virus will be around for years. Thank God we have treatments also now, which we didn't have before. It's not only the vaccine. It's, I think in the situations that we are entering now is even more important than the treatment. That um, those that are getting sick, they will, they will uh, not end up in hospitals and die and will be uh, just a few days home, hopefully, for most of them. Not all, but for most of them. But this is uh, where I think things are going. So we need to make sure that uh, we have treatments available. And we need to make sure that we develop a vaccine that lasts a year. It's been a struggle to get some people to take their first, second, and now third or fourth COVID vaccines. Only around one-third of Americans are boosted. But there's still an entire group for whom vaccination hasn't even been an option. Children under five. Albert and I talked about this too, and he said Pfizer expects to submit its data this month on the efficacy of a three-dose series for these kids, and that adding a third dose seemed to provide substantially more protection against COVID compared to just two doses. 
Also, the treatment Albert just mentioned refers to an antiviral drug from Pfizer that you've probably heard of. It's called Paxlovid. The initial approval study included symptomatic, unvaccinated people with COVID who were at high risk of severe disease. When they took Paxlovid early in their infection, it reduced the risk of serious illness or death from COVID by around 90%. After briefly being in short supply earlier this year, it's now readily available for high-risk COVID patients over 12 years old. It's an important tool in the fight against COVID, but I wanted to ask Albert about some recent news concerning the drug. Because the makeup of people using the drug now, mostly vaccinated people, isn't the same as the group that was studied in the trial. I'm sure you have seen these reports of people who take a course of Paxlovid for five days. They get an improvement in symptoms. They test negative, but then they test positive and they actually notice a rebound of symptoms after day five. I know you're not a, a, a virologist, but I'm curious what you think is going on. We are looking into it. We have looked into the data that we have in our clinical trial. We saw a very small percentage of this occurring, but... I think the, the general explanation it is that, um, without myself being virologist, that Paxlovid is not 100% effective, right? Is it using hospitalization and death? 90%. And also, we know also from the studies that um, it's not reducing to zero the viral load. Uh, your uh, immune system should also do the job after this dramatic help. So the remaining virus, you should clean it. Not everybody will do that because not every individual is the same. So I think everything will happen in biology. But 90% of the people <laughs> will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> will not go to hospital, or we will reduce the number of people that go into hospital by 90%. Let's focus on uh, how many lives are saved. I want to kind of reflect a little bit on your particular sort of personality and role as a spokesperson for the company. I think, I mean, you have a different background than many CEOs do. And I'm curious, how do you think that's helped you? I come from humble beginnings. Uh, I come from uh, a country that has a very great uh, heritage and gave democracy to the world, but is not known for giving a lot of CEOs uh, to the world in, in the modern history. Um, I have a very heavy accent. Um, when I was uh, elected as a CEO and they called me in the boardroom to tell me that I was elected, and the first statement that I made to my board members was only in America. There's a perception of pharma that's often historically been quite negative. Why do you think that is? And has that changed as a result of the pandemic? It was very bad. The reputation of uh, the pharmaceutical companies was as bad as uh, the reputation of government in, uh, <laughs> in polls. It's uh, actually, in many cases, government was higher. How can you lose from government in that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's admirable. It was for multiple reasons. Let me start. It was because a lot of uh, the companies were not doing the right thing at certain points. We start with the responsibility of us not doing the right thing. In pricing, in the way that they were promoting things. The second is that um, health is in the forefront of every political debate. 
and uh, in the political debates is easy to find someone to blame and it's much easier to blame someone who is unknown there is not phase a pharma company than for example to blame a hospital when you know the nurses you know the doctors so for multiple reasons the reputation was very bad and the pharma was not able to demonstrate to the world the value that they can bring until pandemic in the pandemic in a very profound way we were able to show that there is a good reason for our existence and there are so many good things that can come out of us and that raised the reputation very very high now the reputation is something that you are earning in drops typically but you can lose in buckets but i know that we need to earn this trust and reputation every single day so all four of us in my house with my wife who's a doctor and two kids actually have covid this week and uh, i'm sure you're thinking about paxlovid and kids but i will tell you that i have a new discovery that you should consider and it's an ipad i have found that the ipad reduces symptoms of the kids and there is an interaction with ice cream and popsicles that I'm sure is 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 perhaps maybe 25% as effective as Paxlovid or any other drugs in kids. So you just keep that in the back of your mind for a little bit. I'm going to try to make a deal with Apple uh, <laughs> to see if you can bring that to market. Yeah, all right, perfect. It might, it might be hard to get an IP on it, but, you know, you could try. All right, well, thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, Bapu, and uh, I enjoy this discussion a lot. That's it for today's show. My family and I are feeling better now, by the way, and we've managed to wean the kids off their iPad ice cream regimens. I want to thank Dr. Albert Burla for taking the time to talk with me. And check out his book, Moonshot, Inside Pfizer's Nine-Month Race to Make the Impossible Possible. It's really quite a page-turner, even though we already know the ending. Next week on Freakonomics MD, a rebroadcast with some twists of an earlier episode on whether barbershops can improve healthcare and health outcomes for black men. I noticed some guys would come and get their hair cut and stay. And you said to yourself, why is he still here? Well, there's a vibe here. There's a community here. There's a conversation going on. This is the community hub. We'll also discuss some new research of mine that looks at why representation is critical in medicine and why it can be so hard to find. That's coming up next week on Freakonomics MD. Please let me know what you thought about today's episode. I'm at bapu at freakonomics.com. If you want to learn more about the show or check out the transcript for this episode, that's all at freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, People I Mostly Admire, and Off Leash. All our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbot Radio. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DrBapuPod. This episode was produced by Julie Canfer and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. We had help this week from Alina Coleman. Our staff also includes Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, Greg Rippin, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Zach Lipinski, Morgan Levy, Ryan Kelly, Jasmine Klinger, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, and Stephen Dubner. Original music composed by Luis Guerra. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. 
As always, thanks for listening. So how do you unwind after a busy day? Like, what do you, you have time to relax in the evenings at all or no? Oh, yes, I do have time to, to relax. I wish uh, I could say I'm, I'm uh, reading German literature, but I'm not that sophisticated <laughs> <laughs> or philosophy. <laughs> so you, you watch Netflix or? <laughs> I watch Netflix a lot. All right. So you watch Netflix. By the way, you don't share your Netflix passwords with other family members, right? Just to be clear. It was stolen, unfortunately. <laughs> it was stolen. Yeah, exactly. I say it was stolen by my close personal friend and family. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.